This is the Writer Who Reads podcast coming to you direct from New Orleans, Louisiana. Hey! Bonjour! (laughs) This is Kate Austin, the writer who doesn't read enough. And this is Trapper Kitchen, the writer who doesn't write enough. And this is part two of our Unapologetic Living series. I keep calling it a series. Well, I'll tell you this, I'm not sorry about it. No, you are unapologetic. (laughs) (laughs) That was the worst thing we've ever done. (laughs) It was well worth the laugh. Yeah, well we have uh, a really very interesting person, author, wonderful woman, who you've probably not heard of. And if you have, let us know how. I've never heard of her. I don't know how to say her name. No, me either. So this will be really fun. This will be great. Yeah. Write in and tell us if you know the correct pronunciation. You know, in episode two, I couldn't say Grimke, which is probably still wrong. (laughs) And this is just like the universe being like, new challenge. Just everything. (sighs) Anyway, so we're going to get into this. I'm going to tell you some wonderful things about our latest author. And, yeah, we'll talk about her work and everything. Oh, my gosh. You've got me on tenterhooks. I know. You're going to love it. I can't wait. Okay. Let's go. Okay. Actually, a few things before we get started. In a text message, you told me American Indian. Yes. Like, we were... I was like, I found this great Native American woman. She's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't pronounce anything. But, you know what? We're going to go for it. And you said... American Indian. Right. And I immediately, like, recoiled. Personally, I didn't call you out on it or anything. But I was just like, oh, my God. Like, that is not the proper term. Like, I have been raised to say Native American. That is the respectful way to refer to, you know, these people. So I was just kind of like, oh, I should correct Trapper. But you you were just saying that. As far as I know, American Mm -hmm. Indian is the proper social term. It's the name of the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. It's yeah. the Smithsonian of American Indian culture and heritage. Yeah. And I believe many... Now, I need to have a disclaimer here. This is based off of just my general social understanding. I'm not a sociologist, nor am I uh, an indigenous person of the Americas. And I don't want you to feel like you're saying something crazy. Right. Because in all of my research, and I did a lot of mm-hmm. research, American Indian, just that phrase just kept coming it's up again right. and again. In and, academic papers. And... My understanding, and when I was in graduate school and whenever I've had discussions about this, it's always been American Indian. Mm -hmm. It's never been Indian or anything like that. It's always been American Indian. Um, And then I'm pretty sure that in the present day in 2018, like the term Amerind. I never heard that. Amerind is, it defines the like people indigenous to the Americas. Wow. From South America. That's great. Because indigenous people and Native American are the like the two terms. Aboriginal that I, First Nations. Yeah. I mean, that's used in Canada yeah. and in the United States a lot for, because they were you know people that were here first. You know, I can say that I've never had a personal relationship with someone who identifies as either an American Indian or a Native Me American. Me either, which is really unfortunate. So it's hard yeah. to say, oh, I'm drawing on this base from personal experience. Yeah. All I know is what I am what I believe is the actual so- socially correct term. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we both always like strive to be super respectful. We try to. Yes. And and yeah, and just Indian just seems so in, in any way, you know, if you say American Indian, because correct me if I'm wrong, 
that the whole Indian thing started when Christopher Columbus yeah. came here and was like, "We're in India." That's right. I okay. Think that's how. I mean, that's what we learned in elementary. That's what school. I learned, and then he was like, "Oh no, Christopher, you're really dumb. Yes. This is America." You know what I mean? Right. So like, I, that's why I stray away from anything that says Indian right. because that's just For a miseducation, right. a miseducated uh, Portuguese man. Yeah. Wasn't he Portuguese? Uh, he was Italian. Ah. But his expedition was funded by the Queen of Spain. So. I'm, I'm not going to edit that out. So <laughs> You're like Spain, yeah. which is also not Portugal. <laughs> but um, I will say this. You know, you said it when you said we're in no way, shape, or form trying to come at this from a disrespectful angle. Yeah. The terms we're using, as far as we know, are socially and academically acceptable. Uh-huh. So whether we're saying American Indian or Native American, I mean, we probably will use these interchangeably during our discussion. Yeah. I tried to avoid saying anything about right. Indians. It's just I didn't refer I to anyone as an Indian. And, 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 you know, to have... It's weird to have a blanket term because you think about the people who are indigenous to... We're talking mostly about North America, right? Yep. With our discussion of the, the author you'll bring up. Who I haven't even brought up yet. Know, I'm sorry. Right? <laughs> yeah. like we're talking about North American peoples, Native peoples. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, from Maine to it's a Alaska huge... to Greenland yeah. to Florida. I mean, that'd be like, you know, if you think about it, we can use blanket terms like European for people who are from Europe. But, I mean, you've got people who are German and You have tons French. of tribes. Yeah, yeah. So it's hard. I mean, I wish we could say, which... The, your author, mm-hmm. she was a member of the Sioux, the Sioux tribe. tribe. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> so maybe we could, you know, I mean, she's approaching her writing, I assume, um, not just from a Sioux perspective, but as the from the perspective of an, a woman who is of Native origin. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, before we get too far into that, because her identity is just a huge part of okay. everything, I want to introduce her and tell you all a little bit about her. Mm-hmm. So her name is Zidkala Shah, and that's also going to lead me into saying that my pronunciations are not the best. I'm going to try. <laughs> that being said, sometimes, if I'm not mistaken... You and I both have trouble with, like, English words. Just in general. Just, I can't even say that, you know, the, the Native American languages <laughs> and dialects are difficult for me. Just English, English is hard for me. The first time. That's my only language, by the way. <laughs> it's English. I know the first time uh, you really said something that struck me is when you were going to Scotland. Oh, God, don't bring that up. What did you say? Where? I was like, I'm going to go to Edinburgh. And Trapper and was said, just, like, patting him on the head. I said... Well, honey, I don't know where Edinburgh is. I said, but I know that Edinburgh is the capital of Scotland. And she's like, how's that spelled? And we had a discussion. She goes, oh, I think that's it. Yeah. But it's still, you still were kind of like, I think you may be wrong, Trapper. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. So that just shows how, how so, lovely and educated I am. Anyway, so I'm going to get into my <laughs> author now that I'm embarrassed. Um, and we'll, we'll go from there. Okay, so Zikala Shah was born Gertrude Simmons on February 22nd, 1876. Hold on, wait. That means Natalie Clifford Barney was born... From our last episode. Yes, in 1876. So they were born the same year. Yeah, and Natalie Clifford Barney was born in October, so that means literally like eight months. Between Between them, that's crazy. And our theme theme for both of those episodes is unapologetic. Unapologetic yeah. living. Man, and we don't consult on this stuff, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's we... weird. Oh, okay, okay. Awesome. <laughs> she was born February 22nd, 1876 on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. She was the third child of Ellen Tate Eowyn 
Simmons, a full-blooded Yankton Sioux, and not much is known about her father other than that he was a white man. Zidkalasha means red bird in the Lakota dialect of the Sioux language and is a name she adopted later in life. At the age of 12, around the time that the United States government began passing and enforcing laws prohibiting American Indian religious freedoms, Zidkalasha left home to attend White's Indiana Manual Labor Institute, a Quaker school in Wabash, Indiana. Do we know she was, does she identify with the Quaker faith? No. And we're going to talk about religion a little bit later. Okay. She um, she didn't seem to have any like deep connection with any particular faith. Okay. okay. Um, she attended the school for three years before returning home to the reservation. After years of attending the assimilationist school, it seems that Zakala Shah struggled with her identity. In an excerpt from a chapter entitled Four Strange Summers and her novel American Indian Stories, she reflects, After my first three years of school, I roamed again in the western country through four strange summers. During that time, I seemed to hang in the heart of chaos, beyond the touch or voice of human aid. My brother, being almost ten years my senior, did not quite understand my feelings. My mother had never gone inside of a schoolhouse, and so she was not capable of comforting her daughter who could read and write. Even nature seemed to have no place for me. I was neither a wee girl nor a tall one, neither a wild Indian nor a tame one. After four years, she returned to school and went to the Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana, where she studied to become a teacher and began playing the violin. She moved to Carlisle, Pennsylvania after that, where she taught at the Pennsylvania Carlisle Indian Industrial School. It was around this time that she began writing autobiographical stories that often confronted the injustices that Native Americans faced at the hands of the United States government. In 1900, Zakala Shah performed as a violin soloist with the Carlisle Indian Band at the Paris Exposition. So, like, when she was attending Earlham College, she kind of started playing the violin. Okay. So this is an interesting part of her life that I think, if you look at her work as a writer... It's kind of like swept to the side a little bit. Her musicianship. Yeah, because she, like, I mean, she performed at the Paris Exposition in, in 1900. I mean, that was the World's Fair, the Paris Yeah, Exposition. that's a big deal, but, like, it was kind of swept aside in all the research that I'd done. So I just wanted to point that out and highlight it and be like, this is a big deal. And she played with a band made up of American Indians, right? Yeah, and I didn't make note of it, but later on in life, like, she wrote an opera. With the aid of someone I else. See. Yeah, so that's a big accomplishment so at first. Yeah. yeah, so this is a big part of her life. I don't want to downplay it, but yeah, we're going to talk about I'm her. Glad you addressed her. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so later that year in 1900, she left the Carlisle Indian Industrial School after the founder, Richard Henry Pratt, did not respond well to her publications. Ugh. So basically, at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, she was basically at a Assimilation is school where they wanted okay. to teach Native Americans to be, be white. yeah, white Christians okay. in a lot of ways. I'm curious, and I may be asking something that's way beyond the scope of research you conducted here, but mm-hmm. uh, were, was it standard to take American Indians from the West and ship them to schools in the East that were set up for them? That seems odd that they would send her all the way to Pennsylvania, or she would go to a school in Pennsylvania. Yeah, in this case, it was... Okay, so the first school that she went to, and she was around 12, she went to a school in Indiana. Yes. And she had been living in South Dakota. Okay. So... That's still a long trip. It's it's a long trip. But at the same time, I think that was part of their plan. You know, separate you from your mother and teach you these new strange ways. Okay. 
So that I think that was a, a tactic that they used. But I'm not sure. There might have been some schools out in the West. There probably were. But this was the school that we she went no to in this instance. If yeah. her mother was like, I want you to go to the school. Or if there was some... In what I read, it seemed like sh- it was her idea. Like She wanted to go and get this Gertrude's education. Idea. Yes. Okay. And I don't... That's another thing I wanted to mention. I don't refer to her as Gertrude. Okay. Because later in life... I mean, she was born she Gertrude. But she chose the name Zitkalasha. Later in life. So you choose... So I'm going to call her that because that's what she wants to be called. But, you know, her her birth name was Gertrude so Simmons. You, so it seems that Kala Shah chose to go to the school in Indiana. But that's the one she chose to do. Yeah, choose. yeah. And you have to remember, she was 12 years old, She's so scared. she made this choice at that age. And her mother was like, listen, obviously this is an America like a US government rules everything and if you want to do this and you want to survive in this time then yeah you're going to have to learn how to read and write so she she was like okay go you know this brings me to another question that maybe you're going to say I have no idea mm-hmm. she's the third child Mm-hmm. Um, and her, she has a brother 10 years her senior were they all did they all share the same father I don't know and that's that's one thing that I really wanted to find out if you know, we don't know much about her father other than that he was yes. white. But if if her mother had this long relationship with this man, why don't we know more about That's him? exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of thinking that maybe her, her brother was her half-brother. Okay. But I, I have no idea. There was no... Not that it's super important. I just it's thought it'd be it's not. Yeah. But yeah, I'd, I'd wonder... When you think about her writing, and we'll talk more about that later... Um, she struggles with identity, and having her father there might have helped her in some ways. Okay. <laughs> um, but I don't, I don't know. It's the antithesis, maybe, of Angelina Weld Grimke, who was motherless <laughs> yes. and raised by a father. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and her mother was white, and her father was black, and she was So this is, again, a black. flip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Folks, we have chosen to do this to weave a narrative thread through all of the episodes. <laughs> <Yeah>. Not. <laughs> this is accidental. Yeah, this is totally accidental, but let's go with it. <laughs> okay, so um, after she performed at the Paris Exposition in 1900, she left the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. She found a thriving artistic community in Boston, Massachusetts, where she was fully able to explore her writing without fear of repercussions from assimilationist employers like... Richard Henry Pack. Man, Boston's a long way from the Dakotas. I know. So she really made her way east. Especially back then. Like, I that mean. was a journey. Yeah, so Zikala Shah published Old Indian Legends in 1901, which documented oral legends she learned from her Sioux tribe. Her intent was to reach a wide, culturally diverse audience, which she did. In 1902, Zikala Shah returned home to South Dakota, where she met Raymond Telsfay Bonin, who was also Yankton Sioux. They married in May of 1902, relocated to the Unitaw and Ouray Reservation in Utah, and had a son, Raymond O. Bonin, in 1903. After 14 years in Utah, they relocated to Washington, D.C. Zikala Shah went on to serve as a member of the Advisory Board of the Society for American Indians, the SAI. She later became the SAI's secretary and, as a result, the editor of their magazine, The American Indian Magazine. The SAI encouraged Indian self-determination and was basically an assimilationist organization. Wait, so they're talking about self-determination, but they also want to help force, encourage them to conform to standard... Yeah, in the context of, you need to be uh, civilized, and I'm saying that, making air quotes, you know, 
uh, American. So what year is this? This is before 1924. So the Native know, Americans are still not even considered I was say, citizens. Uh, at this point, Oklahoma is not a state. It's still Indian territory Yeah, in the United States yeah. at this point. Yeah. So it's re- interesting, the stuff that's going on. Exactly. Like they want them to conform to this. Oh, I don't. How do you social norm? Social norm, like American idea of whiteness. Yeah, exactly. Certain ideas of femininity. Yeah. I mean, even housing styles. So everything that Zakala Shah kind of didn't want to deal with, but like she couldn't escape this. Everywhere she turned, she wanted to work with work for her people. She wanted right. their culture to be preserved, and she wanted them to have opportunities in this new world. And she couldn't escape it. Can you imagine? I mean, it would be very difficult not to get swept up. Not even in, when I say swept up, not in sort of a wave of enthusiasm, but to be caught up in the undertow mm-hmm. of this sort of um, overarching thing, mm-hmm. which is like the idea of American whiteness. Could, yeah. I mean, it would be easy to get pulled into that and not be able to fight your way out. Yeah, exactly. It's like you need to survive in this right. thing, but you also want to maintain some sense of self, and mm-hmm. this is what she was really struggling with for most of her life. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, the SAI disbanded in 1920, um, and I read a lot about disputes about their mission and everything, so okay. that probably had a lot to do with it. Um, and she began working with the General Federation of Women's Clubs to found the Indian Welfare Committee. She formed the National Council of American Indians in 1930, serving as president until her death. Okay. Kala Shah died at the age of 61 on January 26, 1938, and is buried in Arlington Cemetery. Did she die in Virginia, or was she in the Dakotas? I believe she died on the East Coast. So she was still living. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, yes, that is Zit Kalasha's story. Oh, Very it's shortened. I'm sure there's a lot more to tell. Oh yes. Um, but yeah, I do want to read a little excerpt um, of her writing. She did a lot of autobiographical work and creative nonfiction. Is that what you'll be reading? Is yes. Creative nonfiction. Yes. Wonderful. So that'll be different for me. I'm I usually love... really into fiction. So. I love some good creative nonfiction. Yeah, I think you're you're really gonna like this. Excellent. So let's get into that. Why I'm a Pagan by Zikala Shah. When the spirit swells my breast, I love to roam leisurely among the green hills. Or sometimes, sitting on the brink of the murmuring Missouri, I marvel at the great blue overhead. With half-closed eyes, I watch the huge cloud shadows and their noiseless play upon the high bluffs opposite me while into my ear ripple the sweet, soft cadences of the river's song. Folded hands lie in my lap, for the time forgot. My heart and I lie small upon the earth like a grain of throbbing sand. Drifting clouds and tinkling waters, together with the warmth of a genial summer day, bespeak with eloquence the loving mystery round about us. During the idle while I sat upon the sunny river brink, I grew somewhat though my response be not so clearly manifest as in the green grass fringing the edge of the high bluff back of me. At length, retracting the uncertain footpath, scaling the precipitous embankment, I seek the level hands where grow the wild prairie flowers, and they, the lovely little folk, soothe my soul with their perfume breath. Their quaint round faces of varied hue convince the heart which leaps with glad surprise that they, too, are living symbols of omnipotent thought. With a child's eager eye, I drink the myriad star shapes wrought in luxuriant color upon the green. 
Beautiful is the spiritual essence they embody. I leave them nodding in the breeze, but take along with me their impress upon my heart. I pause to rest upon a rock embedded on the side of a foothill facing the low river bottom. Here the stone boy of whom the American Aborigine tells frolics about shooting his baby arrows and shouting aloud with glee at the tiny shafts of lightning that flash from the flying arrow beaks. What an ideal warrior he became, baffling the siege of the pest of all the land till he triumphed over their united attack. And here he lay, in Van, our great-great-grandfather, older than the hill he rested on, older than the race of men who loved to tell of his wonderful career. Interwoven with the thread of his Indian legend of the rock, I fain would trace a subtle knowledge of the native folk which enabled them to recognize a kinship to any and all parts of this vast universe. By the leading of an ancient trail, I moved toward the Indian village. With the strong, happy sense that both great and small are so surely enfolded in his magnitude that, without a miss, each has his allotted individual ground of opportunities, I am buoyant with good nature. Yellow breath swaying upon the slender stem of a wildflower warbles a sweet assurance of this as I pass nearby. Breaking off the clear crystal song, he turns his wee head from side to side, eyeing me wisely as slowly I plod with moccasin feet. Then again he yields himself to his song of joy. Flit, flit, hither and yawn, he fills the summer sky with his swift, sweet melody. And truly does it seem his vigorous freedom lies more in his little spirit than his wing. With these thoughts I reach the log cabin, whither I am strongly drawn by the tie of a child to an aged mother. Outbounds my four-footed friend to meet me, frisking about my path with unmistakable delight. Chan is a black shaggy dog, a thoroughbred little mongrel, of whom I am very fond. Chan seems to understand many words in Sioux, and will go to her mat even when I whisper the word, though generally I think she is guided by the tone of the voice. Often she tries to imitate the sliding inflection and long-drawn-out voice up to the amusement of our guests, but her articulation is quite beyond my ear. In both my hands, I hold her shaggy head and gaze into her large brown eyes. At once, the dilated pupils contract into tiny black dots, as if the roughish spirit within would evade my questioning. Finally, resuming the chair at my desk, I feel in keen sympathy with my fellow creatures, for I seem to see clearly again that all are akin. The racial lines, which once were bitterly real, now serve nothing more than marking out a living mosaic of human beings. And even here, men of the same color are like ivory keys of one instrument, where each represents all the rest, yet varies from them in pitch and quality of voice. And those creatures who are for the time mere echoes of another's note are not unlike the fable of the thin, sick man whose distorted shadow, dressed like a real creature, came to the old master to make him follow as a shadow. Thus, with a compassion for all echoes and human guise, I greet the solemn-faced native preacher who I find awaiting me. I listen with respect for God's creature, though he mouthed most strangely the jangling phrases of a bigoted creed. As our tribe is one large family, where every person is related to all the others, he addressed me. Cousin, I came from the morning church service to talk with you. Yes, I said interrogatively, as he paused for some word from me. Shifting uneasily about in the straight-backed chair he sat upon, he began, Every holy day, Sunday, I look about our little God's house, and not seeing you there, I am disappointed. 
This is why I come today, cousin, as I watch you from afar. I see no unbecoming behavior and hear only good reports of you, which all the more burns me with the wish that you were a church member. Cousin, I was taught long years ago by kind missionaries to read the holy book. These godly men taught me also the folly of our old beliefs. There is one God who gives reward or punishment to the race of dead men. In the upper region, the Christian dead are gathered in unceasing song and prayer. In the deep pit below, the sinful ones dance in torturing flames. Think upon these things, my cousin, and choose now to avoid the afterdoom of hellfire. Then followed a long silence in which he clasped tighter and unclasped again his interlocked fingers. Like instantaneous lightning flashes came pictures of my own mother's making, for she too is now a follower of the new superstition. Knocking out the chinking of our log cabin, some evil hand thrust in a burning taper of braided dry grass, but failed of his intent, for the fire died out and the half-burned brand fell inward to the floor. Directly above it, on a shelf, lay the holy book. This is what we found after our return from a several days' visit. Surely some great power is hid in the sacred book. Brushing away from my eyes, many like pictures, I offered midday meal to the converted Indian, sitting wordless and with downcast face. No sooner had he risen from the table with, Cousin, I have relished it, than the church bell rang. Thither he hurried forth with his afternoon sermon. I watched him as he hastened along, his eyes bent fast upon the dusty road till he disappeared at the end of a quarter of a mile. The little incident recalled to mind the copy of a missionary paper brought to my notice a few days ago, in which a Christian pugilist commented upon a recent article of mine, grossly perverting the spirit of my pen. Still, I would not forget the pale-faced missionary and the hooded aborigine are both God's creatures, though small indeed, their own conceptions of infinite love. A wee child toddling in a wonder world, I prefer to their dogma my excursions into the natural gardens where the voice of the great spirit is heard in the twittering of birds, the rippling of mighty waters, and the sweet breathing of flowers. If this is paganism, then at present, at least, I am a pagan. The tone of that was extremely refreshing. Really? You know that I'm a big fan mm -hmm. of natural imagery you are oh Dense, i love lush, you so much natural imagery yes those were like that was the biggest thing that i took away mm. from this because as a native american woman or a native american person yes. like just think about how important nature is to their culture oh and the title of the the piece is why i'm a pagan is that what yeah. it's called mm -hmm. And I think paganism is also often associated with naturalism. Yeah, so. but also like the term pagan. I wanted to talk about that because that is a very, I don't know, it just seems like a very like, not American, what do you call it, like Euro-American term? Like it's okay. pagan. I would never think of a Native American being like, yes, I'm a pagan. I, <laughs> right. When I think of Native Americans, I think they're like, what do you mean? There's the great spirit and there is nature. What is paganism? Right. You know what I mean? I know what you're saying. But yeah, I understand how She's that's She's adopting all... a term. Exactly. And that, that folds into her education right. that came from being at the school that was teaching her how to be an American. You know mm. what I mean? But yeah, her, her nature imagery is huge. It seems to me, especially whenever she's approached by her cousin, the parson, mm -hmm. it seems to me like uh, she's conducting worship by communing with nature. Mm -hmm. Therefore, she doesn't feel the need to go into a, a I was going to say sanctuary, but I suppose she views... 
the landscape as her sanctuary. Yeah, and I love how the piece starts off with her in nature and yes. appreciating nature. And, I mean, there's so many devices that are used Robbing here. Robbing sand. I picked up on that right away. Yeah, and she is a piece of it. You know, she's this piece of sand right. um, lying on the ground, and she's just one with nature in that moment. And she personifies, like, what was it, the daffodils? Um like literally like nature is this living, breathing entity yeah. and she's just a part of it and she's one with it. And I love that oneness. She talks about her ancestor being buried in the rock, but he's older than the rock. Mm-hmm. Is that, did I hear that correctly? Yeah, you, yeah, definitely. So it's a part, it's her heritage extends beyond even what she sees and she's a part of it. Yeah. Of the earth. I think it's beautiful and... You know, I think as Americans, we are inundated with imagery, okay, of mm-hmm. Americanness. So we hear this and we envision the plains. Mm-hmm. So when she's describing, I don't have trouble mentally venturing to what she's describing, yeah. and it becomes even more vivid. Uh-huh. And I appreciate that. She's not describing the Amazon, I, you know what I mean, where I'd have to, it'd be like really weird and, and foreign. Yeah, like something you've never seen before. Exactly. Like you were an American person and, and you, know, you know what the landscape looks exactly. like. Exactly. I've never been to the prairie, but I know exactly what it yeah. should look like. Yeah. And um, when she's describing it, 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 there's something about it too that feels like she is transporting herself back in time mm-hmm. because she's discussing her moccasined feet and, and in kind of the the way in which she's interacting with nature, mm-hmm. it seems almost nostalgic, mm-hmm. but also present. I love that. I love the word nostalgic in mm-hmm. particular because it's like transporting you back to the time before the Pale Faces. So for me, as an American in present day, I'm like, wow, I'm I'm getting in touch with the America that existed before right. uh, my ancestors were brought over here on slave ships. But you know, like right. I I'm I'm getting in touch with something deeper than than the America I know and uh, right. mostly love today. You know what I mean? Yes. So. Yes, and the approach she takes, I feel like you need to leave this because I've got a lot to say, but I want it to adhere to what you've got to discuss. Yeah, no, I mean, there's so much going on here that I, I almost don't know where to start. But I think the, the reason why I chose this reading in particular um, was because it just embodies everything that she does best you know you have the nature imagery you have this uh connection to nature but you also have this peek into this like autobiographical creative nonfiction world where she kind of shows her pity for her cousin who's like brainwashed almost in a way like that's how she depicts him Mm -hmm. like she listens to him speak she doesn't argue with him she's very patient she feeds him a meal and then he goes on his way and it's almost as if she's sad about it. She's she's like, I'm not going to argue. I see this shift happening mm-hmm. um, among my people. Um, and I'm going to do my best to, I don't know, feed these people and take care of them. I'm curious because I, you know her biographical background. Was she a Christian? Did she identify as a Christian? Because when this piece wrapped up, I got the impression that she may be a Christian, mm-hmm. 
but is saying, I choose not to worship in the way that you do. Mm -hmm. So if that's what paganism is, then yes, I am a pagan. Yeah, because she does reference God. She doesn't say God. She's like, spirits. we are God's creatures. Right. You know, the, the, the white man and the hooded Native American. Like, we are both creatures of God. So if she's going to use her terminology and refer to God as some like an entity that she acknowledges... But I'm curious, is she using that language because it's what's available to her readership? Mm, or is she using be. it because it's personal to her? That's a great point because I, in all my research, you know, there was a lot of weird, uh, I don't know, like comparisons going on. It was like, um, you're looking at this through the lens of a Native person who has this American education. And by that, I mean that she is one of the first writers who kind of a sandwich between the oral traditions of the Native Americans and then like the written literature of Native American authors that we have today. Okay. So she was one of the first people to take these oral traditions and and put them on paper. And we're talking about, when we're talking about this, another caveat, we're talking about Plains, the, the quote-unquote Plains Indians, the people who lived in the western United States. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm talking about, you know... Yankton Sioux. Right. She is Yankton her Sioux. She, yeah, that's yes. her tribe. I don't know anything. I barely know anything about I'm this tribe. We're not talking about like Narragansett or anything like that. Peoples of like the East Coast. Yeah, no. Who had been, you know, this assimilated for generations. Western people. Okay. Yeah. So she's really caught in between, or she's caught in the cultural shift where her mother can't read or write. Mm -hmm. this is some, her mother would have been somebody, I guess, who would have been brought up in. Totally in the native traditions. Yeah, and she was too up until the age of twelve. Like right. she was raised in um in a teepee on I the wish, Missouri River. I wish we knew a little more about the relationship between her mother and father. Mm -hmm. Was this a transient fellow who was there just for a second? Mm -hmm. Was he there at any point in her her life? Yeah, you know, to to give any influence. Not that it, I mean it's not super important, but I think it may have some bearing in, in uh, on a topic like this. And also, it's worth mentioning that we're discussing a woman who, in, in our modern, in, in terms of modern terminology, would have been bi is biracial. Mm -hmm. So she's got a mother who's an American Indian and a father who's European American. Yeah, but how do you identify with that European American culture when you've never been exposed? When he's on around, and you're like you're on a reservation, yes. and you're living this traditionally um, indigenous life. Like, how do you even relate to that? Yeah. And maybe that's what motivated her to go to the school. I really want to know why she decided, oh, I'm going to go get this education at the age of 12. It bring, you know, and it brings up so many interesting topics because about race. You know, the idea that these American Indian children are being sent east to assimilate into American culture. Mm -hmm. And the relationship between otherness and the mainstream here versus our conversation about otherness and the mainstream when talking about Angelina Weld Grimke's work. Mm -hmm. The difference between what it means to be a native person and what it means to be a black person mm -hmm. and the gradation of race within the American consciousness. Yeah. We often think about whiteness and then everything else. But I think it's worth discussing the historical stratification there. Mm -hmm. Whereas Angelina Weld Grimke, for all intents and purposes, she assim assimilated is a funny word because she grew up in America, the East Coast. Yeah. She was a woman of color. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the way she dressed, 
the language she spoke, the education she received. I mean, she went to Harvard. Exactly. She had a lot of opportunities. So we're talking about somebody who didn't need to be sent to a school to be, quote-unquote, assimilated. Yeah. But then you take somebody like Sitkala Shah, who goes, who, who is sent to the East to be assimilated. And I want to say, I'm curious about the relationship between whiteness and what it means to be an American Indian. But look how they viewed the American Indians. Like, they, they oh, call them savages. Sure. They call them uncivilized. Right. So they thought, we need this institution exactly. where we can convert them and yes. teach them Christianity and cut off their hair. Exactly. It's To me, it's interesting because I know that there's, there's a great deal of uh, racial tension involved in this mm-hmm. discussion. But to me, there's so much more emphasis placed, at least historically, on cultural difference when it comes to American Indians mm-hmm. than racial difference. Mm. Do you understand? Yeah, like the because uh, indigenous people had such a. And I know I'm way oversimplifying this. No, 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 throw that no, out there. Yeah, no, this is Terms us trying like to grasp breed and stuff. We can't no. pretend that's not real. I don't want to pretend that stuff's not real. But when we're talking about this. It just brings up so many thoughts that maybe were left that I didn't think about. I think it's, it brings up a lot of questions. It because does. This yes. is my first time really trying to delve into the complexities of you know the the Native American exactly. and and the things that they faced because I didn't learn about this in school. Hey. Like for some ridiculous reason, we did not Nothing. learn about the indigenous people of this this. Do you know country that we live in? I remember, you know, you and I were both educated in Louisiana, mm-hmm. okay? And I remember seventh grade was Louisiana history. Mm-hmm. And they had one chapter in the textbook devoted to, like, devoted to the Tunica, you know, the, the Natchez tribe in Louisiana. It was just glossed over. Talking I don't about, even think I got that. I mean, you went to uh, an all-girls school in New yeah, Orleans, yeah, yeah. and I went to a co-ed school, mm-hmm. not New Orleans. So maybe it was different, but I just remember it was it was only discussed in terms of like geography. So it wasn't mm. we didn't get into the culture so much as this is why the mounds are, are and then Poverty Point, yeah. you know, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site it, uh, near Monroe. I'm like we talked about that, but not as much about the culture. So when we're discussing stuff like this, it's hard because even in college, this was these were not discussions we had. Mm-hmm. I can't count how many discussions I had both as an undergraduate student and a graduate student about the relationship between whiteness and blackness. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm necessarily 100% comfortable talking about that, but it's somewhere where I feel like I can have a discussion without feeling ill at ease. No, definitely. This is such a foreign topic. Yeah, and it's so crazy because we're seeking these authors that we haven't heard about. Right. You know, so we're like, you know, let's go beyond white male writers. Right. Let's go beyond white female writers let's <laughs> let's look for the queer people and the people That's of color right. and the, the writers that we haven't heard from yes. so it it kind of didn't even occur to us at some points like i was like hmm let's go for a black person instead of a white person rather than wow what about native americans we had that discussion yeah we and it did was weird whenever we were talking about like okay who do we want to choose for this next yeah. these next couple episodes uh-huh. and you said you know what let's i want to do a person of color and then we started talking about race, and you're like, you know what? I want to choose um, a black person who writes about race, but in a but in a way that doesn't is not super overt about race. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, gee, I want, and like this was just like just me like musing, thinking like, I wonder if like there's any Asian American authors or American Indian authors. Yeah. And you were like, give me a second. It hit and me. You went, and I was like. like 
why didn't I think yes. to, to just type into Google, oh, an Asian American or right. Native American writer? And the minute that you said, wait a second, you responded back with, I found someone. Yeah, it was it was so easy, <laughs> but we just don't think. We don't. And, and that's, that's a shame, and that's why this podcast exists. I, I'm super <laughs> excited. I can tell you this. Um, there's no way that I, I mean, I say that. I don't think I would have stumbled across Zip Kalasha on my own mm-hmm. and certainly would not have heard an excerpt of why I'm a pagan if mm-hmm. it hadn't been for this. And I want to say I'm, I'm excited about it because not only do I enjoy the idea, all the natural imagery and the relationship that she explains and weaves, I'm sorry, the relationship that her culture has with nature, mm-hmm. and she explains it and weaves it into her work. It's enlightening. Yeah. When you're learning about something you've never heard about. I think so, too. And then uh, a lot of American history, and I don't know if this is, if you feel the same way, but as a student, as an American student, I grew up learning about just the expansion of America. Right. This, like, I don't want to say violent, but this rough force that just, like, we're going to build this country. We are going to do this. It's any dream can come true here. This is America. And... You know, this is a whole different, like, take on it. This is a whole different tone. This is, like, I believe in the great spirit. I respect this land, and it is beautiful. Like, it's it's kind of, it's really different than what we were brought up believing. And I want to say that um, as lovely as the writing is, when you're reading it, there's a, a slight mournful undertone to it. Mm-hmm. You're dealing, it, it seems to me that she is writing about herself totally enmeshed in the traditional culture Uh okay not feeling pressured to go to the protestant church on the reservation or to Uh interact with her to say yes cousin she doesn't feel pressured to do that um but in the same breath even though she's well in touch with Uh the traditions even though she's comfortable with them and she has no desire to part with them there's also this feeling of the cousin represents the pulling away from yeah. the things that she holds dear. And that tone is also very sad. It is. You know, it's like resigned to, okay, this is what this is now. Mm-hmm. Because look, there, this is my cousin who represents a large yes. amount of the uh, Native American population that is conforming to this Christian religion but also here's my mother who has been this great like she had a single mother Mm -hmm. because her father wasn't in the picture her mother taught her everything about their faith you know their native american belief system and she respected her for that and suddenly her mother is a christian so it's the tone of everything is very it's vulnerable and honest but at the same time defiant almost in a way and like very calm like, she's very, she's full of emotion and not very emotional. See if, if you can sense. explain this to me. Mm-hmm. She talks about the chinking in the cabin wall being pulled, pushed out, and then a, a lit braid of straw being pushed through and it not, and falling on the floor and not burning the cabin. Mm-hmm. Is, this, is she talking about her mother equated the fact that the cabin didn't get burned with the fact that the Bible was sitting on the shelf? I didn't, under, I didn't understand that. That was actually uh, her cousin speaking. He so was giving an example of the the power of the Christian so God. So he has taken superstition that honestly, I mean, like that fundamentally is not a part of the Christian faith. The mm-hmm. Bible is a holy book, but does yeah. not have any sort of special powers. Yeah. 
you know, as I understand. So I'll say that I don't know. I know I'm, I was I raised know, Catholic. We're approaching things differently. Yeah, you were raised Catholic. I was raised. I, I don't want to say that there's tons of superstition in Catholicism, but I think that there might be a right. little bit more. So, but and of course that makes and you know it's worth saying that affects the way we approach this kind of stuff. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. which is great because that means we can bring different perspectives yeah. to the table. But I'm thinking. To me, as somebody who was not raised, equating a lot of superstition with Christianity. Yeah. Okay. It seems to me like he is, even though he's drawing away from the traditional yeah. uh, belief system, he's injecting some of that into his present belief system. Yeah. No, I. That's definitely believable. So it's, and maybe that that adds to the the sadness of of mm-hmm. her realization that oh God, you know, this person is a little bit brainwashed yes. but I can still see the traces of his past of my my current belief system in him and you know I want to say this also I was very struck by the vocabulary she uses to me I don't get the impression this is somebody who struggled over every word I know as a writer sometimes with me it's like oh my gosh clicking thinking to myself what's a good synonym I don't like this word mm-hmm. to me this feels like somebody who was drawing upon a fluid grasp of the language, of course, mm-hmm. but also somebody who knew who was writing from the, the soul. Mm-hmm. Who, when she writes something like "throbbing grain of sand," it's not like "ooh, that sounds pretty." It's like she's taking what's in her mind, feelings, mm-hmm. yeah, and just using the language available to her to write it. And it's incredible because, as lush, I think, and as beautiful and descriptive and vivid as it is, it's also very matter of fact mm-hmm. it's not got a lot of fluff or superfluous you know yeah. wording in there and i appreciate the and i think style. that really helps because i want to talk about her point of view she uses first person point of view mm-hmm. and she she's like forcing the reader to see everything through her eyes right so just think about this like she was a native american who went to um, this assimilationist school who got this education and her writing, I'm not saying it, like I mentioned before that her writing is for a culturally diverse audience. She wanted to kind of combat this, this idea that native Americans were savage and uncivilized. She right. was like, no, look, this is our culture. This is what's beautiful mm-hmm. in it. This, these are our beliefs and they're not scary and they're not crazy. Yeah. And these are the yeah. things that the U S government were kind of putting out there to be like, look, these Indians are bad. Um, so, like, she has this first-person point of view to kind of put her white readers in her shoes and be like, look, this is my point of view, and you have to you have to see it if you're reading this. First person is... Intimate. Know, it's very intimate. Mm-hmm. It's the easiest to write. Yeah. It's the hardest to read for me. Really? Oh, yeah. I don't... I mean, you, you read a lot of my stuff. I never write in first person. You don't. You don't. Um, but for me, it's the hardest to read because it's so intimate. And when it's something like this, when it's a subject like this, with which I'm not overly familiar, it can be jarring um, in that I'm being pulled into something and it's like feeling, it's like being blind and feeling around mm-hmm. a room. And imagine if you did have some prejudices, which oh, you, you don't have about right. this, but if you, if you did, yes. it would be uncomfortable. It is. And I think that's good, particularly with this style of writing mm-hmm. that's meant to be, um, edifying yeah. and also honest. It's the, I think it's great. And I'm glad that you were able to give some backstory on it, that this is creative nonfiction. This is not... Uh, a short story she wrote where maybe the the eye that's being used is not her. This is definitely 
Is it Kala Shah, right? That's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah, this is this is creative nonfiction, and it's very real. Mm. And I don't know. I feel like we could go on about this forever. It's got my interest peaked. Really? Oh, it really has. Oh, good. I, I, when you brought her, when you presented her, and you said, "Hey, just so you know, I'm going to be doing this person." I'm, the first thought I had is, I honestly don't know that I have ever read a word written by an American Indian author. Me either, and I'm angry at the fact that I wasn't required to read to read this. And I don't want to say that it's all about religion because it's really not. Like some of her, some of her great work, I was really torn between reading what we read today um, and another piece, which is about her going to the school at 12 years old. And her experiences there, yes. and them cutting off her hair, and her Ooh. regretting her decision to go there. Like, it is intense, and I think everyone should go and read it. So, we'll include that in our show notes as well. Awesome. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more here. I can't wait to dive into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't wait. This yeah. is something so far beyond what I would normally get into. And mm-hmm. I'm glad that you took the time and the energy to, to pull this out. Yeah. I, we're going to do more of this, absolutely. So yes. Stay we're going to really tuned. have to be creative. I know. I know. We're going to do real research. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So... This has been the fourth episode of the Writer Who Reads podcast. I'm your host, Kate Austin. I'm Trapper Kinchin. Thanks for joining us as we try to read a little more, find a little better, and explore the human condition together.